verse 1 to 25. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. It was about a month ago that I had the opportunity to, uh, uh, to preach here in this church, and the subject that time was the first chapter of First Samuel and the story of, uh, of Hannah. And as I was introducing that story, I spoke about what happens here in this church when there is a royal funeral. And I spoke about the bell of the old church on the other side of town ringing rhythmically as the, as the funeral pr- procession comes here and how the, the, the very earth uh, resonates as there's a royal funeral here. And I wonder how many funerals have actually taken place here in this church. This church has existed 
uh, for something like 700 years, 1380-something, something like that, hundreds of years. Or for that matter, on a more joyful uh, note, how many weddings have taken place right here in this church? And I think about Yosin Summer. Uh, many of you here were right here in this church rejoicing uh, with their, their marriage. And can you imagine how many baptisms have taken place in this church over hundreds and hundreds of years? I, maybe they have a church record that says how many, how many funerals, how many weddings, and how many baptisms. I don't know. But what I want to begin today with is I want to talk about two baptisms that took place in this church in the same week, right over here, right behind this screen. Two baptisms in 1632, four days apart. Two baby boys, born the same week here in Delft. Both of them geniuses. Geniuses. On the 4th of November of that year, Anthony Leeuwenhoek was baptized uh, just right behind the screen over here. And he was, he was a humble man in, in, a, in a sense. He was a fabric merchant. He sold cloth. He bought and sold cloth. And in doing so, he examined closely. He used magnifying glasses to examine the warp and the woof of the, of the fabric. And he became curious about using lenses like that. And over time, he became extraordinarily skilled at making lenses, and he, and he made one of the first microscopes that, that were ever existed. And he, he was not just a genius, but he was an intensely curious man. Intensely. He, he, he put everything under his microscopes. Everything. And it was one day, and I think it was 1674, that he, using one of his microscopes, he looked and he saw something that no human being had ever seen before. One-celled animals in the water, swimming around. And, and his reaction was, was ah, look at the creation of God. God can create... Uh, great whales and, and elephants and, and whatever else. But the idea of a, of a single-cell animal moving around as rapidly as it was in the water, no one had ever seen that before. He saw it. And when he reported it to the uh, Royal Academy in, in England, he was a member of the Royal Academy, uh, they didn't believe him. <laughs> nobody, because nobody had ever seen this before. He said, but it's there. And eventually they, they discovered the same thing that, uh, that he had, had seen. And because of his fame, he became very famous. And he had a lot of visitors come. Royal visits, as a matter of fact. Peter the Great... Tsar of all the Russias sailed his boat down the sea and moored it just south of Delft to visit Leeuwenhoek. He wanted to see these, these mysterious little bugs in the, in the water. Have you ever thought of what it would be like to have royalty visit you? <laughs> Leeuwenhoek had that. But that same week that Leonhuk was baptized here, there was that other baptism, Johannes Vermeer. Johannes Vermeer, 
an artistic genius. The son of an innkeeper, but he had an artistic talent. And not just a talent, but he had a genius for for how to paint and how to take a single moment and, and, and make it like it was forever. His paintings, he didn't have too many of them, but they are so lifelike. They are so real. It's almost unimaginable. And as a young man, fairly young man, I, he joined the guild here in Delft. The Guild of St. Luke, which, which the site of it is just right around the corner from here. It's where the Vermeer Museum is right now, because that's where Vermeer was born, in that area there. And he was a member of the, the Guild of St. Luke. And I got curious about why St. Luke and the Guild of St. Luke. And in medieval times, they had patron saints. And uh, they believed in that sort of thing. We don't believe in patron saints. But Luke was the patron saint of painters, of artists. Because they believed that Luke had actually painted uh, the Virgin Mary and the Christ child. Well, I don't know if he ever actually painted. But I think we're going to see here as we go through the, the Gospel of Luke that he, he drew an image, a, a reality of Mary and the, and the Christ child uh, in words that is exquisite. Anyway, Vermeer became a member of the Guild of St. Luke, and his paintings are, are, are priceless, absolutely priceless. And when, and when he died in 1675, he died right over there. His house, if you, if you go out these, uh, the, the door right here from the church, uh, most of us could throw a stone as far enough to, to hit the building that it, it was where his house was. And at the time, one of the, one of the paintings that hung on the wall there which is called The Music Lesson, was one of the last paintings that was in his family's possession. Uh, And it was sold shortly thereafter in order to pay the debts. He died uh, impoverished with huge debts. And The Music Lesson, that painting that was hanging in a house over here, is now hanging in Buckingham Palace of Queen Elizabeth. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? The genius of that man and, and the painting sold in order to pay the debts to the baker. Now it's hanging in Buckingham Palace. And yes, Delft is a city of geniuses. Those are just two of them. Just two and it's a, this is a city of learning, it's a city of art, uh, research, uh, and you might wonder just exactly what is a genius, and one uh, linguist defines it this way, he says, genius is conceived as a mental power far beyond explanation in terms of heritage or education, and manifests itself by exceptional originality and extraordinary intelligence surpassing that of most intellectually superior people. There aren't many of those. There's some very brilliant people, some very talented people, uh, but there aren't that many geniuses. But I believe that Luke, the writer of the Gospel, was a real genius. He was a real genius. And not only was he a genius, but he, I th- believe that he was a, a genius who was carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit in order to give us 
not just the Gospel of Luke, but the book of Acts as well. And I view those as, as being two parts of, of, one, of one work. And just like Leo and Luke, Luke had powers of perception and curiosity that, that were extraordinary. And like Johannes Vermeer, he had a, an attention to the details and to the, and to the reality of life. Uh, Luke was a, was a real uh, genius. He, was, he, was, he investigated uh, in order to do his writing, uh, and he, he produced a literary man, uh, masterpiece. And that's what we're beginning. We're going to begin here in this church now a look at that masterpiece. And to appreciate this masterpiece, you don't need to visit the museum You don't need to visit a a royal palace. All you need to do is pick up your Bible and begin reading with the curiosity of Leeuwenhoek and the perceptive eyes of a Vermeer. And Luke would, would say, with the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, Yes, yes. The Holy Spirit is so important, so incredibly important to, to Luke. In fact, if you, if you look at, at the Gospel of Luke, he mentions the Spirit more than any of the other Gospels. And if you add the book of Acts, it, it's just incredible with how much he mentions of, uh, of the Holy Spirit. So... It's my prayer that that the Holy Spirit would be guiding us, this church, in studying and going through this this, uh, gospel, not just today, but throughout this series. And as I say, I see it as just one part, the gospel of Luke is just one part of uh, of, uh, a complete work. Because because the, the book of Acts intertwines with it so incredibly. It is a beautiful composition, exquisite literary structure. And here in the Gospel of Luke, the, the, just as an example, the action begins in the temple. And it ends up with Zechariah being unable to speak. Where does the Gospel of Luke end? the disciples continually in the temple praising God with their mouths open. He began it in one way, he begins it at the temple, and he ends it at the temple. But something has happened in between, and and we're going to be looking over the next weeks and months at what happens in between. When when I teach students about the, the Gospel of Luke, I, I, I try to give them something to remember, something about the quality of the Gospel of Luke. And, and I play off of the idea that Luke was the beloved physician. And so I say, when, you, when you're getting into the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, get a stethoscope. You know, one of those things that the doctor puts in his ears to examine. They didn't have them in Luke's day. But it's an instrument for close examination, just like Luke did with the story of uh, Jesus. So it's an, an instrument of examination, but what does it examine? Thum, 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 the heart. And the heart is so important to Luke, so incredibly important. Because he is, he is wanting people to understand and realize in their heart who Jesus is and respond in that way. What else do you, does a doctor examine with the stethoscope? The lungs, the breathing, the breath. <laughs> and, and this might help you to remember uh, in, 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 
in the New Testament, the same word for breath is a, is a word for, for spirit as well. So, so get ready, get out your stethoscopes, be prepared to use that to examine the text and, and to see, to examine your own heart as well as we, as we go through this gospel. And one of the things about Vermeer's paintings and other paintings of, of his time is that when they, when they depicted a painting, it, ha- it was a story, usually. It's portraying some story. And then there would be little motifs within the painting that, that added details to the story. In fact, in fact, if you'd gone to the Guild of St. Luke, you probably could have found a book there that was a whole book of motifs that had additional meaning that was put into a painting. So that when you, when you look at the painting, you could see, oh yes, here's a painting of a milkmaid, and she's pouring uh, milk into a, into a bowl. But there are other things going on in that painting that, that, that Vermeer had painted that people of the day would have comprehended. So they would have known that there was, there was a story here, but there was a little bit more to the story. And it's the same, it's the same with, with uh, our Bible. When we, when we are reading our Bible and we are reading these stories, there are motifs, there are themes that are being uh, given in the story so that, so that, yes, there is the story on one level, but there's additional information that, that uh, uh, is being given. And in particular with Luke, there's, there's a, a couple of motifs, a couple of themes, that, more than a couple, but I'm going to mention a couple. The temple and Jerusalem. Again, None of the other gospel writers, they all talk of the temple in, the, in Jerusalem, but not as much as Luke. Luke's gospel and Acts is just loaded with references to the temple and to Jerusalem. And of course, the temple, what does that represent? It, 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 represents, it represents the presence of God among his people. It represents God and his holiness. So as we are going through the Gospel of Luke, there will be, there will be themes like this that, that come, come into play. And one other thing that Luke is very, very interested in is the idea of the journey, of the way. In fact, he speaks in, in the book of Acts, he, he speaks about that, that the people of God who believed in Jesus Christ were the people of the way. They weren't called Christians in the beginning. He tells us that. They were, they were people of the way. And so, and so in, in Luke's gospel and then again in, in Acts, there is a continual going in, in the gospel, there's going to Jerusalem and back, and to Jerusalem and back, and to Jerusalem. And every time, every time the action turns back to Jerusalem in the gospel, there, there seems to be some sort of revelation, some sort of revelatory act that takes place. And then it's reversed after the cross. In, in, in Acts, because there they go from, from Jerusalem out, back to Jerusalem and out, to Jerusalem and out. And the revelatory uh, action takes place outside of Jerusalem. And then, of course, the book of Acts ends not in the temple in Jerusalem, but to the outermost parts of the earth. One other, one other theme, major theme of Luke is concern for the poor, for widows, 
and orphans. Uh, All of the gospel writers will reflect that. But not as much as Luke. Luke had a particular, particular interest uh, in that. And and I want to get back to one other uh, old time, long time ago, uh, resident of, of this city, Delft, a man named Jakob Krasvenko. You may have heard of him, you probably have not. There's a street over in the Vesterskreit here that's named after him, Krasvenko. And he was, again, he was from a prominent family, but, uh, maybe a hundred years before uh, Vermeer and uh, Leeuwenhoek. But he, he, he came from a prominent family, but he had a heart for the poor. And I think, I think he probably, I think Luke would have probably found a lot of fellowship with the, with the man because the, the man uh, taught himself medicine. <laughs> uh, in particular, he taught, taught himself uh, about herbal medicine. And right here on out of Delft, uh, 205 is where his house was, and in the back was where he had his garden growing herbs to help uh, produce medicines to heal people. What, some of you are probably new to Delft, and I would encourage you to, to learn uh, some of these things. This is a fascinating, fascinating uh, city to, uh, to dwell in. One other thing about Luke's writing is his, his, his concern for women. He, has, he, has, uh, he portrays women uh, vividly, and, and, he, and he presents women as being incredibly important to the gospel message and to the spread of the gospel. You can just see how, how Luke had this, had this high view of, of women and their place in society and, and, how, and how important they were to, uh, to the gospel. And I, I could connect that to Vermeer as well. Vermeer liked to portray women. <laughs> and a lot of them were just simply ordinary women that were portrayed in his, in his paintings. Now, a month ago, I, I was in First Samuel. Chapter one, and there I I looked at it and I and I said that on the surface of that story it was about Hannah and her longing for a son. She was barren. Then that was a reflection of a deeper story of Israel's longing for a king. And then there's there was a wider story. It wasn't just one king. It was the Messiah. And there is a greater story, and that's where we want to begin looking today because it is a story of the coming of the Messiah. So this week I'm going to look at the opening chapter, just briefly at the opening uh, verses of chapter 1 of the Gospel of, of Luke. The first four verses... Uh, as Sarah uh, read for us, is something of just a kind of a prologue. But notice in that prologue, in those first four verses, that uh, what he is talking about, he is talking about the fact that, that he was using eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. People who had actually seen these, these things happen. And ministers of the word. So, so what Luke is saying here is he's saying, what I am going to present to you is coming straight from eyewitnesses to what, what happened. And he says that he, he followed all things closely for some time past. Uh, most English translations, I think, have it a little better than that. He's saying, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. I see this, you see the same kind of spirit as Leeuwenhoek, the, the examination, the close examination. 
And he's addressing this to Theophilus. And who is Theophilus? Well, we really don't know. He calls him excellent Theophilus, suggesting that he was probably a fairly high-ranking official of some kind, or someone in, in society. And the name, the name simply means either a lover of God or beloved of God. And it may have been his actual name, because that was not an unknown name at the time, but it more likely was a pseudonym to, to protect the identity of the person that, that he was uh, writing to. But he followed things closely. He examined things, and he's then going to lay out his gospel and Acts, because he says the same thing, or similar in uh, the book of Acts, so that, so that we would have our faith strengthened. And then the background. Then the background. It says, uh, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Boy, that sets the tone. That really, really sets the tone. Herod. Herod the Great. He was great. He was a great builder. But he was great in wickedness. He was a nasty, nasty guy. Killing his own sons and horrible stuff that Herod did. And just like, just like in the story of Hannah during the time of the judges, the time of the judges was an awful, awful time. When, when Luke says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, that would have told the hearers at the time, oh yeah, we know about Herod. What a nasty, nasty guy. What about today? What about today? Uh, Time of the judges, it was horrible. Time of Herod, horrible. Think about what these days are like. Kind of keep that in mind. And once again, just like in the story of Hannah, the problem of barrenness comes up. But note well, note well what, what Luke says. He says that Zechariah and, and his wife Elizabeth walked blamelessly. They were righteous people. And, and not, just, not just outwardly righteous. Somebody could be outwardly righteous, doing all of the right things, but, but Luke is careful to say that he, they were righteous before God. And God sees the heart, which is important to to Luke. He sees the heart. These were people who, who were not just going through the motions, but they were really walking with God. But barren. Can you imagine? Can you can you imagine what might have gone through their minds? We're walking faithfully. Why? Why? No children. Luke says that they were advanced in years, which is a very delicate way of saying they were getting old. Now, uh, when, when I think of somebody that's old, as I'm getting older, I think of somebody, you know, 80, 90 years old, uh, but most likely, most likely, Zechariah was not yet even 50. And I think of 50, oh boy. <laughs> if only I could be 50 again. 50 is not old. 50 is... But the reason I say 50 is because he, he was a Levite. He was a priest. And it, and it says in Numbers... It says in Numbers that they are to begin their service when they're 25 and they end their service, their active service, when they're 50. And it says, it says in, in Numbers that after the age of 50, they can, they can assist with, with keeping guard, but they were not to do the service. 
And yet, and yet here we're going to see that, that, that Zechariah uh, is actually going to continue to be doing this service. So when you think of Zechariah being old, don't think of him as being maybe hunched over a very elderly man, but, but somebody maybe around 50. Can you imagine, though, the tensions that were in that family, that, that husband and wife, righteous before God and unable to have children? But then there is that temple encounter. The temple encounter, verses 8 uh, through 17. Let's, let's look, at, look, at, look at that. Uh, and Zechariah there is serving as a priest. And Luke tells us that, that he was from the division of Abijah. There were 24 divisions of, of, the, of the, uh, the priesthood. 24 divisions, and Abijah was one of them, and he belonged to that uh, division. And scholars tell us that, uh, that there were probably somewhere around 18,000 priests at that time. And so, what do you do with 18,000 of them? Well, you have a lottery. Who gets to serve? So they had Lots. They drew lots to see who would, who would serve in the temple uh, at the daily services. And with 18,000, and I'm not sure if that was active duty priests or not, but with that number, uh, they, they were chosen by lot. And, and the Babylonian Talmud that was reflecting the, those times, the time of, uh, around the birth of Jesus, uh, suggested, suggested that you were only chosen once as a priest. So when your lot came up, you served, and that was it. So can you imagine old Zechariah, almost 50 years old probably at that time, Year after year after year, his number did not come up. Can you imagine that? And then all of a sudden, one day, hey, Zechariah, you're the guy. You're the one that's going to bring in the offering of incense. I, I, I wonder what he thought. I wonder if he thought, uh, finally, finally, after all these years... After all these years, I get to do it. I get to do it. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You can wonder how many times he went up to Jerusalem thinking, maybe this year, maybe this year. And his expectations were dashed when he was not chosen to serve. And speaking of expectations, notice when he goes in to, to give the offering of incense, there is a multitude of people outside praying. Once again, I think Luke is saying there was that expectation. Uh, they probably didn't know that something very special was going to happen that day. Could have been in the morning. The, the, daily, the daily service was at 9 in the morning or 3 in the afternoon. But uh, there was that expectation. Something is going to happen. And, and should we not also here in this church, when we come together, have that expectation that something is going to happen, that God is going to, is going to uh, do something special in a certain sense. And that certain special might simply be touching our hearts. Touching our hearts. Uh, so all of a sudden... Gabriel shows up. Gabriel, the, you know, the angel. And it must have been amazing. It must have been absolutely amazing. And, 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 and whenever, whenever uh, a person encounters an angel in the, in, the, in the Bible, almost every time there is great fear. I can't imagine what they must have looked like. 
what would cause them to be so fearful? But there is fear. And so, so automatically, Gabriel says, do not fear. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. He says, because your prayer has been heard. When, when did he pray? Don't know. Some think it was a pr- prayers that he had had for his wife Elizabeth and their barrenness uh, over the years. And was he continuing to pray for that? He's, maybe, maybe not. But at one time, he certainly was. Luke doesn't tell us w- w- when that, those prayers were taking place. But he says, Gabriel says, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. And how would you react? Think about it. Reflect on it. How would you react if you suddenly see this angel and 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 he says, your prayers have been answered? I don't know what I would, I would do, but I'm not going to be too hard on Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah re- responds, he says, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is <clears throat> advanced in years. <laughs> it, it, there's a sense of disbelief. There's a a sense of disbelief. And of course, Gabriel then explains, look, I'm Gabriel, and I've come directly from from the throne of God, and I'm giving you this message, and you're not believing it? You are going to be silent until these things take place. Silent. Silent. And then if you notice in, in verse 21, because we're, we'll move on to his response. While all of this is going on, the people are outside and they're wondering, what's keeping him? I mean, th- th- this, this is a serious matter because, because when, when somebody was going into the temple to, to, for the service, if they did something wrong, they could be struck dead, just like that. And they're wondering, and there's once again, there's this delay. When's he coming out? The expectation. He, he's not here yet. What, what, what's happening? How come he's not coming out? And finally, he does come out. He does come out, and he can't speak. And they knew he has probably seen a vision in, in the temple. And it, and it, says, uh, it says, when he came out, he was, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Picture this in your mind. He's making signs to them. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine? It must have been humor. It must have been almost humorous, you know. How, what kind of signs do you make to describe? And he kept doing it, it says. I find this <laughs> kind of humorous in a, in a certain sense. You know, an angel, and he cannot speak. And here I want to, here I want to be a little easy on Zechariah, uh, because uh, uh, it, it reminds me of somebody else that was uh, in that kind of situation from Genesis 15 and uh, uh, Abraham. And the Lord comes to him and says, don't fear. And Abraham says, yeah, but you haven't given me a son. You know, he's, he kind of, that's, and those are the first words recorded of Abraham to God. Basically, he's saying, yeah, what, what about these promises? Uh, you know, uh, to my, my uh, servants are going to be my heirs and everything. And, and God takes him outside of the 
tent there and he looks at the stars and he says, so shall your descendants be. And, and that bedrock verse of salvation, of faith, 15 verse 6, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. But then, but then, but then, going on, verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? <laughs> Almost the exact same kind of words. How shall I know? Give me some evidence. And that's what Zechariah had wanted. He had wanted some evidence for it. So, in a certain sense, in a certain sense, those of you with children, you know about putting somebody in a child that's been disobedient, putting them into timeout. You know, go into the corner, stand in the corner, timeout. That's in a sense what happens to Zechariah. He he goes into a a, a nine month timeout where he cannot speak. Uh, and after his service, he, and I want you to note this, he returns to his home in Judah. But that's not the end of Zechariah's story because he was mute until the birth of John the Baptist. But the first words that came out of Zechariah's mouth after the birth of John, who we will call the Baptist was, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Remember I talked about visit by royalty? (laughs) Can you imagine, you know, visited by God himself? And here, Notice, just like Hannah, just like Hannah, did not, when she responded in prayer, her prayer was not, thank you for giving me a son. In Zechariah's uh, uh, song here, it's not, thank you God for giving me a son. It was, praise God because you are bringing us a redeemer, a redeemer. So remember that surface story, like in Hannah's longing for a son, that is a reflection of a longing for a king. And the wider story, a longing for the Messiah. And the greater story, the coming of the Messiah, and that's what is happening here. But what is Advent really all about? Just getting ready for Christmas? Get, get the Christmas tree, get the lights, get the presents. No. There is a richer story. The Messiah is coming back. He's coming back. And if you don't sense, I, I, I'm looking at myself as well, sometimes I, I'm not sure I sense that enough. When I, look, when I look at the times that we live in today, and when I mean times, I'm not talking about the, the last couple of years. I'm talking about the last hundred years. Because after all, Herod, uh, the time of the Herodian uh, rulers was, was a good hundred years. The time of the judges was hundreds of years. And if you look back over the last hundred years, How much wickedness, how much darkness has been out there? In the 20s, in the 20s, they were using using, uh, uh, famine in order to kill people for political gain. Is that not still happening today? Yeah. People disappearing in the middle of the night? 
for political reasons? It happened in the 20s and 30s. Is it happening now? You bet it is. Time of the National Socialists in Germany. Six million Jews and others incarcerated and killed and burned. Well, I don't know if that exact thing is happening, but what about things like abortion? We call it abortion, but it's getting rid of human bodies, is it not? I think we need to really come to grips with the horror and the wickedness that is around us so that we will have even greater hope for the Messiah, the, the King, Jesus Christ himself, who is coming back to make this all right. And I think, I think we really need to come to grips with that. These are dark, dark days, but that makes the hope even brighter still. Brighter still. Personally, Luke's message, how might we look at that? Overall, Luke is saying Jesus is the Messiah. Have faith in him. And maybe personally we might look at it as well at our own unfulfilled longings, ambitions, and goals. But I think the wider thing is corporately as the people of God, uh, we need to be aware of what is going on in the world today and we need to have our eyes focused on Jesus and Jesus coming back. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Amen.